This is episode 186 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled, Greg Bear, Blood Music and Darwin's Radio. This episode is part of our literary Sunday series during the pandemic. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide, Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show, and thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. I've got a twofer for you today. We're going to be talking about two books by Greg Bear, one called Blood Music, and the other one is called Darwin's Radio. And just to introduce Greg, he is an American writer and illustrator best known for science fiction. His work has covered themes of galactic conflict, artificial universes, consciousness and cultural practices, and accelerated evolution. And it's really that last one that Blood Music and Darwin's Radio talk about. I want to read from Greg's autobiography from his website, uh, since I think it's really charming. He writes, I was born in San Diego, San Diego, California, on August 20th, 1951, to Wilma M. and Dale F. Bayer. My father was in the Navy, and by the time I was 12 years old, I had traveled with my parents to Japan, the Philippines, and Alaska, as well as touring various parts of the United States. It was in Alaska at age 10 that I completed my first short story. I had been writing for a year or so already. At age 13 or 14, I began submitting stories to the magazines, and at 15, I sold my first short story, to Robert Loundis's famous science fiction. He says it appeared when I was 16. It took five years to sell my next story, but by the time I was 23, I began selling regularly. In the late 1960s, a group of high school friends, myself, and local fans helped found San Diego Comic-Con. And just a, a note here, Wikipedia says he was one of five co-founders. He also writes, my first novel, finished when I was 19, was completely rewritten and sold to Berkeley some 13 years later. The first novel I sold, Hegira, if I'm saying that right, by Dell, appeared in 1979. And by order of publication, my novels are Hegira, Cyclone, which I guess is a horror book, actually, which is the only one of that genre that he's written. Beyond Heaven's River, Strength of Stones, The Infinity Concerto, and then Blood Music, one of the books we're going to talk about today. In 1983, I was nominated for the Nebula Award for my short story, Petra. In 1984, Hard Fought and Blood Music won the Nebula Awards for Best Novella and Novelette, respectively. Blood Music went on to win the Hugo Award. The novel version of that story, also called Blood Music, won the Prix Apollo in France and was nominated for the Hugo and Nebula Awards. He also won some more Hugo and Nebula Awards for short stories, 
and then Moving Mars in 1993 won the 1994 Nebula for Best Novel. And then Darwin's Radio was awarded the Nebula in 2001. Greg is clearly a friendly guy and a big networker and really welcoming to his fans. He talks a lot on his website about his friendships with other creators and his uh, proud of his relationship with Ray Bradbury, who wouldn't be. And he wrote, I knew Ray Bradbury for over 45 years since meeting him when I was a teenager. We became fast friends, and I introduced Ray to San Diego Comic-Con, which he attended from 1970 until 2010. There's also a really sweet interview with the Science Fiction Club at Middletown, Pennsylvania Library, which is dated July of 2020, so very recent and uh, so one of the people who submitted questions asked him, Darwin's Radio and Darwin's Children, which is the sequel to that one, were great books. Do you think species Homo sapiens sapiens is still evolving? And Greg writes, I wonder. We see no major changes in the last 40,000 years or so, and I'm not even sure Neanderthals are all that different other than we have chins and they don't. But likely as we change our own environment, we will have to adapt to those changes, and that could lead to physiological changes. Interesting. Uh, Somebody else asked him, do you have a writing routine that you stick with? And what are some of your hobbies other than writing? And Greg responded, I try to write a little each day and keep adding to the stack of a manuscript. Other than that, I enjoy reading, building models, and keeping up with this mad, mad, mad world. Another questioner wrote, what are you working on now and what are your goals for the future? And Greg responded, the next novel is The Unfinished Land, which could be called a fantasy, but in some aspects is a deeply philosophical examination of the roots of our civilization in the guise of an adventure tale. It will be out in February, so that's February of 2021, and can be pre-ordered on Amazon now. Greg lives in Seattle and is married to Astrid Anderson Bear, who's the daughter of the science fiction writer Poole Anderson, hope I'm saying that right, and had a story published in San Diego Noir. They have two children who are also writers. So let's talk a little bit more about blood music. One of the questioners at the library asked him, why did you decide to expand your short story blood music into a novel? Do you feel reading the short story is sufficient for appreciating the ideas, or do you recommend reading the novel in lieu of the short? Is there anything in particular that makes the decision to expand a short story into a novel-length work? And Greg had a very succinct answer to this. He said, I had more to say as it turned out. And the extra turn of the screws, so to speak, helped me expand one of my best short stories into one of my best novels. You get the impression that Greg loves his work. He's written over 50 books, which when you go to his website and you scroll through all of those, and there are all these books, at that clip, he is writing multiple books per year, which is pretty remarkable. So taking a look at uh, first at Blood Music, I picked this up somewhere, I think, in the early 90s. It's sort of about biotechnology and nanotechnology, and the beginning of it takes place here in La Jolla, close to San Diego. 
And I remember liking the beginning, so let's start there. Chapter 1, La Jolla, California. The rectangular slate-black sign stood on a low mound of bright green and clumpy Korean grass, surrounded by irises and sided by a dark cement-bedded brook filled with koi. Carved into the street side of the sign was the name Genitron, in Times Roman letters of insignia red and beneath the name the motto, Where Small Things Make Big Changes. The Genitron labs and business offices were housed in a U-shaped bare concrete Bauhaus structure surrounding a rectangular garden court. The main complex had two levels with open-air walkways. Beyond the courtyard and just behind an artificial hummock of earth, not yet filled in with new greenery, was a four-story black glass-sided cube fenced with electrified razor wire. These were the two sides of Genitron, the open labs where biochip research was conducted and the defense contracts building where military applications were investigated. Security was strict even in the open labs. All employees wore laser-printed badges and non-employee access to the labs was carefully monitored. The management of Genitron, five Stanford graduates who founded the company just three years out of school, realized that industrial espionage was even more likely than an intelligence breach in the black cube. Yet the outward atmosphere was serene, and every attempt was made to soft-pedal the security measures. A tall, stoop-shouldered man with unruly black hair untangled himself from the interior of a red Volvo sports car and sneezed twice before crossing the employee parking lot. The grasses were tuning up for an early summer orgy of irritation. He casually greeted Walter, the middle-aged and whippet-wiry guard. Walter just as casually confirmed his badge by running it through the laser reader. Not much sleep last night, Mr. Ulam, Walter asked. Virgil pursed his lips and shook his head. Parties, Walter. His eyes were red and his nose was swollen from constant rubbing, with the handkerchief that now resided, abused and submissive in his pocket. How working men like you can party on a weeknight, I don't know. The ladies demand it, Walter, Virgil said, passing through. Walter grinned and nodded, though he sincerely doubted Virgil was getting much action, parties or no. Unless standards had severely declined since Walter's day, nobody with a week's growth of beard was getting much action. Ulam was not the most prepossessing figure at Genitron. He stood six foot two inches on very large, flat feet. He was 25 pounds overweight, and at 32 years of age, his back hurt him. He had high blood pressure and he could never shave close enough to eliminate an Emmett Kelly shadow. So the story goes on. Virgil actually uh, gets fired. He's been working on a project that doesn't pass muster with his supervisors, and so with some animosity, they uh, let him go. And he doesn't know what to do with his work because he's very invested in what he's been working on, this secret project that he's been working on, uh, these lymphocytes, sort of combining some artificial intelligence with these nanoparticles. And so he decides, 
this is a good uh, 20 pages in, that he's going to take that work with him, and the way he will do that is to inject those things into himself. So here's the scene where he does that. The lymphocyte palette was on the bottom shelf. Virgil kneeled and removed a tube. He quickly inserted the syringe and drew up 20 cc's of the serum. The syringe had never been used before, and the cannule should therefore be reasonably sterile. He had no time for an alcohol swab, but he had to take that risk. Before he inserted the needle under his skin, he wondered briefly what he was doing and what he thought he could gain. There was very little chance the lymphocytes would survive. It was possible that his tampering had changed them sufficiently for them to either die in his bloodstream, unable to adapt, or do something uncharacteristic and be destroyed by his own immune system. Either way, the lifespan of an active lymphocyte in the human body was a matter of weeks. Life was hard for the body's cops. The needle went in. He felt a dull prick, a brief sting, and the cold fluid mixing with his blood. He withdrew the needle and lay the syringe in the bottom of the refrigerator. Pallet of tubes and spinner bottle in hand, he turned and shut the door. Rothwild watched nervously as Virgil put on rubber gloves and one by one poured the contents of the tubes into a beaker half-filled with ethanol. He then added the fluid in the spinner bottle. With a small grin, Virgil stopped the beaker and sloshed its contents, then placed it into a protective waste box. He slid the box across the floor with his foot. It's all yours, he said. Rothwild had finished turning through the notebooks. I'm not sure these shouldn't remain in our possession, he said. You spent a lot of our time working on them. Virgil's idiot grin didn't change. I'll sue Genitron and spread dirt in every journal I can think of. Not good for your upcoming position in the market, no? Rothwell regarded him with half-lidded eyes, his neck and cheeks pinking slightly. Get out of here, he said. We'll send the rest of your stuff later. Virgil picked up the box. The cold feeling in his forearm had passed now. Rothwild escorted him down the stairs and across the sidewalk to the gate. Walter accepted the badge, his face rigid, and Rothwild followed Virgil to the parking lot. Remember your contract, Rothwild said. Just remember what you can and cannot say. I am allowed to say one thing, I believe, Virgil said, struggling to keep his words clear through his anger. What's that? Rothwild asked. Fuck you, all of you. Virgil drove by the Genitron sign and thought of all that had happened within those austere walls. He looked at the black cube beyond, barely visible through a copse of eucalyptus trees. More than likely, the experiment was over. For a moment, he felt ill with tension and disgust, and then he thought of the billions of lymphocytes he had just destroyed. His nausea increased, and he had to swallow hard to keep the taste of acid out of his throat. Fuck you, he murmured, because everything I touch is fucked. So he leaves, and then it turns out those lymphocytes, aha, can you imagine, start doing things inside of him. Uh, so one of the things that, that it does is makes him into like this sex machine, like, you know, three times before breakfast type uh, sex person. Uh, but then other things start happening that are n a little bit less appealing. So here's a scene with his mother after he goes to visit her at their house. Verge? It's been nice, April, but I think it's time for me to leave. How long do you have? 
He stood and stared at her, shocked. I'm not dying, mother. All his life, my son has been working for his supreme moment. Sounds to me like it's come, Verge. That's crazier than horseshit. I'll throw what you've told me right back at you, son. I'm not a genius, but I'm not a brick wall either. You tell me you've made intelligent germs, and I'll tell you right now, anyone who's ever sanitized a toilet or cleaned a diaper pail would cringe at the idea of germs that think. What happens when they fight back, Verge? Tell your old mother that. There was no answer. He wasn't sure there was even a viable subject in their discussion. Nothing made sense, but he could feel his stomach tensing. He had performed this ritual before getting into trouble and then coming to his mother uneasy and uncertain, not sure precisely what sort of trouble he was in. With uncanny regularity, she had seemed to jump onto a higher plane of reasoning and identify his problems, laying them out for him so they became unavoidable. This was not a service that made him love her any more, but it did make her invaluable to him. He stood and reached down to pat her hand. She turned it and gripped his hand in hers. You're going now, she said. Yes. How long do we have, Virgil? What? He couldn't understand it, but his eyes suddenly filled with tears and he began to tremble. Come back to me if you can, she said. Terrified, he grabbed his suitcase, packed the night before, and ran down the steps to the Volvo, throwing open the trunk and tossing it in. He rounded the car and caught his knee on the rear bumper. Pain surged, then dropped off rapidly. He climbed into the bucket seat and started the engine. His mother stood on the porch, silk gown flowing in the slight morning breeze, and Virgil waved at her as he pulled the car away. Normality, wave at your mother drive away. Drive away knowing that your father never existed and that your mother was a witch, and what did that make you? He shook his head until his ears rang, somehow managing to keep the car going in a straight line down the street. A white ridge lay across the back of his left hand, like a tiny thread glued to the skin with mucilage. Creepy, right? So it turns out these lymphocytes improve on certain things like nearsightedness and posture and intelligence. And then when the new sites, as he calls them, begin to talk to the hosts, which is kind of where I lost interest. And those, through infection, conversion, and assimilation of humans and other organisms, the cells eventually aggregate most of the biosphere in North America into this giant region, 7,000 kilometers wide. And this, quote, civilization incorporates both the evolved new sites and recently assimilated conventional humans. And it's eventually forced to abandon the normal plane of existence in favor of one in which thought does not require a physical substrate. And Wikipedia says it introduces one of Bear's favorite themes, reality as a function of observers. So in blood music, reality becomes unstable as the number of observers, trillions of intelligent single-cell organisms, spirals higher and higher. This was all a bit too much for me by then, but it's probably his best-known work, and there are still things that I like about it. So as we said, it was published as a short story first in 1983 and won the Nebula for Best Novelette and the 1984 Hugo Award, and then the completed novel won in 1985 
for the Nebula Award and also won the Hugo. Since it started as a short story, the plot is actually pretty succinct, and the whole book caps out at 247, which is quite reasonable. It has not yet been made into a movie, uh, but Greg wrote in response to a question that it had been optioned a few times and is still going the rounds with script. You know, I really love to look at Amazon reviews, and so there were a few here. Uh, four stars from Hopeful But Cynic says, The first half of the book focuses on Virgil, a brilliant but perhaps short-sighted scientist who in classic sci-fi fashion experiments on himself. The way he's written it makes sense to him why he would do this. It could have been bad, but Bear makes it realistic, so my suspension of disbelief isn't taxed too much at all. And I'm with him so far. The second half of the book switches between different characters and gets into some metaphysical stuff that I think works better as a metaphor for politics than as hard science fiction. For example, at one point, Virgil is talking to the cells in his body, and he discovers that to them, he's the universe. They're surprised there's an outside of him, but he isn't sure what they're up to since he's only talking to the researchers and not the cells in charge. Overall, it's a good book, and it's made me think about things since I've read it. Not saying it's perfect, but I'd recommend it. Two stars from Card. He says, I will try to avoid spoilers, although I am of the opinion that the author did the greater spoilage. The book is very interesting and engrossing when opening with its mystery of well based on science and character until about two-thirds in, at which point the author begins a comic book-style eruption of body part-dropping zombies and fearsome flying whales, no kidding, and endless overwritten and gory battle scenes. I simply skimmed over all this nightmarish fantasy fun until I came to a very unsatisfying ending. And Chaotico 09 gave it two out of five stars, saying, no. Blood Music follows a brilliant scientist that does some illegal experiments, uses mammalian cells. When he is fired to save his experiments, he injects himself. The plot quickly transitions to apocalyptic. The first third of the book reads a lot like a Crichton novel, which is a positive, but it quickly goes downhill following this transition. The book has a few problems. The first, as stated above, is that the transition is done poorly. I was enjoying following the scientists through the slow buildup, but the book goes nuclear and transitions to the POV of a bunch of random characters like the girl in New York and the brothers in California. Unfortunately, we are given a bunch of background and dry information about both. The main problem, though, is that the book becomes ungrounded. With a bunch of weak characters surrounded by blocks of technical text, the book becomes rather boring, which was kind of my conclusion. I mean, I kept it on my shelves because of the San Diego connection, but I didn't think it was that good. There just wasn't enough of a story for me. I'm not that huge of a sci-fi fan. You know, I think I suffer from the talking squids in space problem that Margaret Atwood talked about. But it did kind of turn out to be so outrageous that became boring to me too. Which brings us to Darwin's radio. It was written in year 2000, and I had never encountered it or heard of it until I was working on the literary uh, Sunday series and thought about blood music because it's about people whose blood gets infected and the pandemic, if you can call it that, which takes over reality. 
you know, it may feel like we're already there with COVID-19, but I don't think we are quite yet. So then I ran across Darwin's radio, which is also pretty well known. And it's similar to Blood Music in some ways. Its tagline was, the next great war will be inside us. It's the first in a series of two books, and the second one is called Darwin's Children. And you'll see why these titles make sense. I did not, let me emphasize, did not read the second of these books partly because the first one is over 500 pages. Let me see if I can summarize this for you. So in Darwin's radio, the premise is that our DNA contains portions of prehistoric retroviruses, one of which, if activated, will accelerate evolution. So an infected woman will give birth to a baby who is more evolved than her parents. And how does a woman get infected, you might ask? A man does it. So this disease, if you want to call it that, passes from a man to a woman like an STD. And if the woman gets pregnant, her first fetus, yes, you heard that right, will self-abort. Nice, right? And leave another fertilized egg in its place that has 52 chromosomes instead of our normal 46. And if the woman has ever been infected with other viruses, like related to herpes, the new egg will die. If it survives, now I don't want to ruin this for you. If you're like me, and at this point your eyes have already rolled back into your head, you won't care. But if you're nodding your head along slowly and thinking, wow, that could totally happen, then I won't say too much more except that the plot involves huge issues around this disease called Herod's flu, the new so-called plague, abortion issues, what the government decides to do with the mothers and the babies, health institution. It's just basically a giant, huge mess. And while I was reading this, I kept thinking, you know, there's just no accounting for taste because obviously lots of people love this book, including people who give out awards. You know, let's read a little bit of it so you get a sense. The story opens with a disgraced anthropologist high up in the Alps with a couple of nut jobs because they want to show him this amazing discovery they've made up in the ice. And just listen to the writing and think about if this is what 15 years of writing multiple books per year does to you, and compare it to the writing that opened uh, Blood Music. The flat afternoon sky spread over the black and gray mountains like a stage backdrop, the color of a dog's pale, crazy eye. His ankles aching and back burning from a misplaced loop of nylon rope, Mitch Raffleson followed Tildy's quick female form along the margin between the white fern and a dust of new snow on the field, mingled with the ice boulders of the fall, crenels and spikes of old ice had been sculpted by summer heat into milky flint-edged knives. To Mitch's left, the mountains rose over the jumble of black boulders flanking the broken slope of the ice fall. On the right, in the full glare of the sun, the ice rose in blinding brilliance to the perfect catenary of the cirque. 
Franco was about 20 yards to the south, hidden by the rim of Mitch's goggles. Mitch could hear him, but not see him. Some kilometers behind, also out of sight now, was the brilliant orange round fiberglass and aluminum bivouac where they had made their last rest stop. He did not know how many kilometers they were from the last hut whose name he had forgotten, but the memory of bright sun and warm tea in the sitting room, the gashduba, gave him some strength. When this ordeal was over, he would get another cup of strong tea and sit in the gashduba and thank God he was warm and alive. They were approaching a wall of rock and a bridge of snow lying over a chasm dug by meltwater. These now frozen streams formed during the spring and summer and eroded the edge of the glacier. Beyond the bridge, descending from a U-shaped depression in the wall, rose what looked like a gnome's upside-down castle or a pipe organ carved from ice. A frozen waterfall spread out in many thick columns. Chunks of dislodged ice and drifts of snow gathered around the dirty white of the base. Sun burnished the cream and white at the top. Franco came into view as if out of a fog and joined up with Tilde. So far, they had been on relatively level glacier. Now it seemed that Tilde and Franco were going to scale the pipe organ. Mitch stopped for a moment and reached behind to pull out his ice axe. He pushed up his goggles, crouched, then fell back on his butt with a grunt to check his crampons. Ice balls between the spikes yielded to his knife. Tilde walked back a few yards to speak to him. He looked up at her, his thick dark eyebrows forming a bridge over a pushed-up nose, round green eyes blinking at the cold. This saves us an hour, Tilde said, pointing at the pipe organ. It's late. You've slowed us down. Her English came precise from thin lips with a seductive Austrian accent. She had a slight but well-proportioned figure, white blonde hair rucked under a dark blue polar tech cap, an elfin face with clear gray eyes. Attractive, but not Mitch's type. Still, they had been lovers of the moment before Franco arrived. Okay, now, many pages later, they come to the discovery, which is this Neanderthal couple with a dead baby next to them. And the baby appears to be Homo sapiens sapiens. And I apologize for the spoiler, but the book is so dang long that that's like nothing in the scheme of things. Although, in a way, it was the thing that seemed the most interesting to me. Okay, we then cut to the country of Georgia, where a scientist, an expert in retroviruses, is there and is taken to take a look at a mass grave in which there are a whole bunch of mothers, who, uh, pregnant women, I should say, who have been killed because they've been essentially bayoneted through the stomach. So the plot thickens. But this is but a tiny fraction of this book. And from here, frankly, we just go into an unbelievable number of pages of meetings where it's government officials, it's scientists, it's these characters meeting with other people where they're slowly, slowly explaining to us, the readers, all the science behind all of this, such such as it is, such science as it is, but really just endless meetings. It's almost as though 
the book wanted to show you for every advancement in the plot how many meetings it took to actually get that far. And so it is a tough slog to get through there. At least for me, it was. And so I just kept thinking there's no accounting for taste uh, because to me, I just wanted a lot more action and less of these, you know, kind of endless meetings with all these characters that turn out not to move the plot forward uh, much at all. But that wasn't the opinion of lots of other people, obviously. The plot does pick up in parts two and three as the situation becomes more aggravated, as more is known, and the government intervenes and so forth. Uh, But I did struggle with uh, staying awake, frankly. And I'll give you a few more Amazon reviews here, uh, partly because they're funny, but also because they give you a sense of of our frustration with the book. First, here's a very balanced review from Steve King, and his name is familiar. I feel as though I've read a review or two by him before. So he writes, interesting topic compared by odd pacing and characters. Modern biologists have long taken the view that evolution happens in small steps over many generations. That notion is challenged with the appearance of Shiva a retrovirus so sinister it appears to be killing children in the womb. As more research happens, however, it appears that Shiva may not be a virulent disease after all and that humanity is about to take a large evolutionary step forward in very short order. The government worried that the children and parents of Shiva carriers may represent a vector of new diseases, orders that they be quarantined for the good of humanity. A few scientists outside the mainstream think that Shiva children are not to be feared, but are the next step in human evolution. Can they avoid the government long enough to find out? The premise of Darwin's radio really is a good one, but for me, the execution was somewhat flawed. First, the reader knows too much about the Shiva virus before the primary point of view characters in the novel, leaving very little thrill to a book that is essentially a biological techno-thriller. For me, the first half of the book was a very technical look at the microbiology of diseases, retroviruses, and phages, very clinical and dry. It isn't until 250 pages or so into the book before the brilliant scientists, biologists, and virologists begin to catch on to the fact that Shiva may not be a disease after all, and my general feeling at that point was, thanks for catching up, can we move along now? The second half of the book reads a bit fast as a handful of scientists begin to realize that Shiva may not be just a terrible disease. The government task force assigned to deal with Shiva takes a hard line toward authoritarianism, insisting that Shiva carriers, especially expectant mothers and their children, should be quarantined while a few former task force members quit or flee in an attempt to understand Shiva outside the party line. The second half of the book is more readable and less like a biology textbook, but I found the handful of of point-of-view characters still being followed at this point over-emotional to the point of becoming annoying. Point-of-view characters ride a nearly non-stop roller coaster between giddy joy and boiling rage, and I found myself thinking, these are not the people who would survive a crisis. 
In the end, Darwin's radio almost reads like two books, the first delving deep into modern biology and virology, and the second an emotional, sometimes overly so, race-against-the-clock style thriller. The premise is good enough to make me want to read the follow-up, Darwin's Children, with the hope that it will be a stronger execution of a good idea. Nice review. A few more here, way too slow and technical, very boring, boring, not for the layman. And this person says the character development is shallow and the characters are about as exciting as self-replicating androgen. Chris says implausible, bloated, pretentious. He says he was shocked at all the awards that the book had won. And then he says, to begin with, the premise is utter nonsense. Of course, it is science fiction, so there's going to be a certain amount of unreality. But Greg Bear styles himself a hard science fiction writer, so it's fair to expect some vaguely plausible extrapolation from established science. The premise of this book is so implausible that it makes suspension of disbelief impossible. It says, even if the premise of the book is implausible, this could still be a good work of science fiction if it explored in a believable way the reactions of society to the premise. However, the book fails on that level as well. It asks the reader to believe that the Surgeon General of the United States is a powerful political figure. So right there, it loses credibility. Again, without giving too much away, the societal reaction seems ridiculously overblown and melodramatic particularly when you stop to consider how little has actually happened at various points in the story. (laughs) All kinds of events occur that seem completely unrealistic, how society reacts to crises and how our government works. Interesting. All the above flaws wouldn't necessarily be fatal if the book were still a fun read, but it's not. I've seldom come across a book that was more bloated with literally hundreds of pages of boring, pointless text that don't move the plot forward one iota. Whole characters and plot lines, lots of them, could be eliminated without impacting the central story. Even the main characters spend dozens and dozens of pages doing nothing interesting or important. It's either sloppy, self-indulgent writing or a deliberate attempt to pad the book. I think this is worth pausing and thinking about for just a moment. You know, sometimes books become long and suffer from this when there isn't a real effort taking at editing them. And so I think it's a little harsh to say that it might be self-indulgent or that it's a deliberate attempt to pad the book. It might be just the case of kind of, you know, almost stream of consciousness writing without editing happening afterwards. Uh, MDoc wrote Snore. He said, sometimes books when badly written are implausible. They're still fun to read. This wasn't the case here. Another person, Bradley Onkst, says it could have been uh, good, but it rambled with insignificant writing and repeated the same information over and over. Actual concept of the book was a decent one. The delivery failed to live up to its potential. J.R. Dunn says, Greg Bear used to be a lot better than this. Back in the 80s, after an unusually long apprenticeship, he produced some fine material, blood music in the stories, and wind from a burning woman in particular. But in the past 20 years, everything he's published has gotten duller as it's grown longer and more forgettable as it's gotten more complex. It's a career all too typical of contemporary science fiction, and that's a sad thing. Melanie DePaldos 
also hated the book, gave it one star. It says, I do not recommend this book to anyone. I think science fiction should actually teach you something about science. If you read this and you're not already familiar with science, it will give you some terrible misconceptions. If you already do know the science, it will just make you mad. You know, it's really amazing how many of these reviews talk about starting out really excited about the book and then getting more and more disillusioned as they went along. And some people saying, you know, just became unbearable and couldn't even finish it. And some people say, I almost tossed Darwin's radio, but finally I was able to end this torture uh, to get rid of it. The main idea, I must admit, is charming, but it was so ill-developed chapter after chapter that finally it fades at the end to big nonsense. The plot is terrible. Reminds me of a 15-year-old teenager's script, interrupting the normal flow of ideas, arguments, and facts. Birth and love scenes were so badly written they lack any trace of reality. One of the worst written books I've ever read. But this person also says, better buy blood music, the same idea, (laughs) but shorter. Uh, And then Rainy Day Ninja says... Uh, character treatment for the virus. This writer makes an interesting comment that I've actually thought more about while I was reading the book. The most frustrating part is not only is the story boring, but the opportunities to make it more interesting are so glaringly obvious. The protagonist is a woman of childbearing age, the demographic affected by the virus, but she doesn't contract it until the last third of the book. Even then, her big heroic choice is to do nothing and let it run its course. The most egregious example of this problem is when Dickon is in a large crowd that starts to get agitated. Just when a riot is about to break out, he gets out of the crowd and the scene ends. The next chapter opens with a newspaper headline telling us how many people died. At that point, if he had made it that far, the editor should have written, show don't tell in big red letters across the page and sent back the manuscript. It's an interesting criticism because there's another place where the main character makes a discovery, and instead of describing the discovery, that information is provided really just in a couple of sentences, and and it's a huge discovery as a flashback in the following scene. It's It's a strange thing to have done, to not take advantage of an opportunity to have something kind of exciting happen, but instead to tell it in just a few sentences, kind of here, like with this headline, oh, by the way, people died, and oh, by the way, I made this amazing discovery in the last chapter, but I didn't tell you about it. And then two more. Uh, I know we're kind of dumping on this poor book, but there were two more here that amused me. One of them was from Democratus, and he writes, Reading this book caused me to do two things, walk around my den ranting to myself about debasement of science and to coin the phrase fairy science. In the best possible light, Darwin's radio is fairy science. At worst, it's a hit piece on science designed to stupefy and repel young minds from science. In no case is there any real science anywhere in the book. It is only alluded to before Bear makes an outrageous and wrong statement, thereafter abusing said science for his own specious goals. Oh, dear. And then this one 
From Steve, he writes, disappointing. When a book is really, really, really bad, I throw it across the room. This book took its maiden flight at 12 p.m. on a Saturday night on around 85. I'm going to give this book to my brother, Lonnie, because he keeps giving me horrible books. If he reads this, great. He will save himself from wasting a few hours. If he doesn't, I figure I owe him anyway. Okay, I'm going to stop picking on the book now because I'm not sure it totally deserves it, and Greg himself certainly doesn't. He has a website with uh, the images of his really amazing number of books and news and a discussion board where he answers questions from fans and that also include little tidbits of one in August of 2020, mentioning that he's working on an autobiography. This guy just can't get enough of writing. And there was even a posting from two days ago, and this was posted by Mark Kozell, and he wrote, I recall in Slant, which is one of uh, Bear's books, that Rafkin Law's rules put in place to prevent future abuses due to the actions of a disgraced, corrupt past president. Today I saw a Washington Post story that House Democrats are working on changes to, quote, prevent future presidential abuses. Yikes. Now I'm worried 2020 will end like the end of blood music. Uh, Greg responded, interesting. Actually, the Rafkin laws were in Queen of Angels, and I've been wondering how long that bit of imagination would take to come true. And then Brian Stahl wrote about Darwin's radio, eerily prophetic. Upon my second read of Darwin's radio, I realized I never checked the publication date, and to my surprise, it was 1999, predating our very eventful new century by a year. While nothing like Shiva happened, Although the Ebola cases on U.S. soil in 2014 is close, I'd say the themes and plot conflicts in Darwin's radio nailed the past 20 or so years. Like the stories, CDC, Washington, Thread, our political polarization has infected the field of science, blocking efforts to tackle real problems, most prominently climate change. So this letter was actually posted in December of 2019, so before the pandemic. The book features the same religious fundamentalism and terrorism that has plagued the decade. I could write a paper on this, but I'll stop myself with a few honorable mentions, such as the proliferation of fake news, globalization, and erosion of trust in public institutions are all there. So kudos, Mr. Bear. This story hasn't aged a day. And Greg wrote back, Interesting how things have turned out. No, better to focus on the aspects of the novel that have not been scientifically demonstrated, and there are more than a few. Oh, I thought that was extremely gracious and uh, humble. I want to close with two things. One of them is a post he published in June of 2020, and this was a message that from Greg. I think it's important for all of us to speak out and support the aggrieved communities in their pain and to emphasize their right to protest without fear of tyrannical intervention. We're in a very dangerous time. I've never seen a moment in my history so fraught with fundamental political peril. President Penny Wise, his voice rising with mechanical twang from the gutter, has done his best to make things even more awful than they are. It is to weep what I am seeing now. But even in these dark times, we must keep faith in America and hope to God that Pennywise will pass and we can become a civilized nation again. 
Remember George Floyd. Remember all the victims of racism from before Tulsa to today. And work this next election to cage the clown. Greg is obviously very interested in social issues and technology and how they interact. And there's an interesting TEDx talk he did in 2010 about too much information in which he talks about privacy and social judgment. Uh, It's quite interesting. I'll include a link to it in the show notes. And one of the things he talks about in there is who do we hate now? And finally, here's a submission to his discussion board from April of 2020. Greg is almost 70 years old, but he's clearly very active. Even during the pandemic, he'll probably come out with about 10 books after the quarantine. So anyway, Priyana writes about blood music in our current pandemic. Hi, I'm Priyana, a student at New York University. I'm leading a discussion on your novel, Blood Music, in my class, and I thought perhaps you might be able to answer a few questions of mine. Reading the novel right now, I felt like it was such a timely piece for me. I know I reflected differently on it now than I would have at any other time. Has the current pandemic caused you to reflect differently on your writing at all? I would love to hear a bit about your thought process in regards to the structure of the book. And then she goes on to ask a pretty actually complicated question about the introduction of characters in blood music. Thank you, and I hope you are well. And Greg responded to her, Hello, Priyana. Blood music was pretty much spontaneous, though the novel does expand on the short story. The distribution of characters seemed to work best to introduce and then to expand the story. As to my thoughts on writing such quasi-apocalyptic stories today, I don't really know. I'm much older than I was when I wrote Blood Music and am now separated from friends and family in a way I never expected. The projected, prophesied politics of later novels, from Queen of Angels to Darwin's Children and even Quantico, has been made even more dire by our present political situation, which I hope does get evened out soon. Hope all is well with you and yours. And the same goes for you, dear listeners. I hope all is well with you and yours. Thanks for listening, everybody. Well, the pandemic isn't really over, but it seems as though we've moved into a different phase where our lives have a bit more normalcy. As a result, we're adjusting the format of the show back to fewer, more lengthy episodes airing on Tuesday and Friday and sometimes on Sunday, since those Sunday literary episodes have been very popular. Speaking of which, our downloads have exploded during the pandemic, so thank you for your patronage. If you like what we do, you can support the show through our Patreon page. Another way to support us, which doesn't cost anything, is to follow us or like us on Podomatic.com, and that will help us increase our visibility. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a comment about who you are, what you like, or if you have a comment about the show. And finally, I also run a professional training company for people who want to advance in their careers with courses on communication skills, executive presence, and accent reduction. You can find out more at discreteguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T-G-U-I-D-E. Please take care and let's talk again soon.